0: Good morning, Storefront Church. It is great to see you. Happy New Year. Um, Chantal mentioned uh, there's lots of new faces, but so many of you I know and I've known for a while, and so it's great to be here. It's also great for me to see the journey of this church. We were part of the conversations with the plants when this church was just a dream, and to see where it is today is really beautiful and exciting. So thank you for your hospitality and having Luke and I here. It's really a privilege to worship with you. Let me also say, and this is not just a perfunctory thing that I would say, your pastor, David, is one of my closest friends. I often text him saying something like, where would I be without you? And I mean it every single time I say it. He is a voice of wisdom, a voice of Jesus in my life. And so I just say to you, I know from over 10 years of very close friendship, how fortunate you are to be led by David and Susan and the integrity of their ministry, the passion they have for Jesus and their love for this part of the city. So I'm really jealous of you is basically all I'm saying. Today's sermon is gonna be looking at John chapter 16, the very last verse and part of John 17. I'll read it in just a second and then I'll pray. But I just wanna say, as we begin, this is something I've been thinking about now for a few months. And it's a privilege for me to be able to share God's word and this particular sermon with you. So let me read, I think the passage will be on the screen, but John chapter 16, verse 33, and then into parts of chapter 17. Hear now this reading of God's word. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble But take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And then down to verse 13 of the same chapter, Jesus goes on in prayer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. That is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, with our Bibles open, with this passage now before us, we ask for your Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive truth and to see and experience the glory and the grace of Jesus. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is often hard and sometimes unspeakably so. Most days, most of us are facing some kind of challenge, and on some days and in some seasons, those challenges are overwhelming and suffocating. Now, going through hard stuff always impacts our faith. Sometimes suffering draws a person closer to God, and sometimes suffering, and especially chronic suffering, pushes people farther away from God. I'm talking about the loneliness that you can't shake, no matter how much you try and put yourself out there, or the illness that's always there. It's always hard to live with, but people have stopped asking you about because you were diagnosed so long ago. It's that ongoing experience of sorrow, missing someone that is deeply loved, but has been lost C.S. Lewis has a very haunting memoir called A Grief Observed. He wrote it as he watched his wife die of cancer. And in his memoir, he gave voice to something that I've experienced and that I've seen time and time again as a pastor. Maybe you have too. Lewis says this, writing about the impact of watching his wife die of cancer on his faith. He says this, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms of suffering on your spiritual life. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate and all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent to help in our time of trouble? A little bit later in that same memoir, Lewis would conclude, it's not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now, that's an honest and a raw account of what it feels like to live with suffering or to try to reconcile faith with experiences of suffering. But here's my question, the question that I want us to consider today in the midst of all of your suffering, in the midst of all of your joy, in the midst of whatever life has placed before you, where is Jesus? Like right now at this moment, what is Jesus doing? If you're new to church, maybe you're not a Christian, you've picked a really good Sunday to be here because one of the most basic things that you can wonder about in someone exploring the Christian faith is where is Jesus at this moment? And what's he up to? Maybe you've been at church for a long time. Maybe you've been a person who identifies as a Christian for years and years. We know that Jesus died in the past. We know that one day he'll return in the future. But the question for us today is at this moment and right now, where is Jesus and what is he doing? And the answer that the Bible gives us is that right now, Jesus is praying for you. At this moment, Jesus is praying for his people. He's praying for the church. Now, one of the most common things that Christians say to each other is, oh, I'll pray for you, or I've been praying for you. Sometimes we say that because we don't know what else to say, so we just say, I'm praying for you, and that's encouraging. It's good to know that people are praying for you, but you know what's even better? To actually hear somebody praying for you, Have you ever had that, where someone talks to God with you and for you? It's a very humbling, very fortifying experience to be prayed for and to hear somebody praying for you. What I want to do in today's sermon is not just show you that Jesus is praying for you, but I want you to hear him praying for you today. I want you to hear the very Son of God pleading on your behalf. And so that's what we're going to be doing in today's sermon. First, looking at the reality that Jesus is praying for his people. Then second, we're going to hear him pray. And then third, we're going to consider how do we respond to a God who is praying for us? And it's my hope, my prayer, that if you're tired, if you're weary, as Susan was mentioning, you came into 2023 thinking, this is going to be my year. And eight days in, you're realizing, oh, maybe it's not that you would find some rest today in a God who loves you so much that he never stops praying for you. That's what we want to talk about. So first, that Jesus is praying for you. Now, there aren't that many places in the Bible that describe what Jesus is doing right now, but in all the passages that do, there's a common thread that runs through them, and it's simply this. Jesus is praying for his church, and the word that the Bible uses to describe that prayer is intercession, Jesus is interceding for his people. So let me read to you two passages from other parts of the Bible that say this. Hebrews chapter seven and verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Romans chapter eight and verse 34. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. At this moment and forever, Jesus is praying for his people. And the word the Bible uses is intercession. Now, we don't use the word intercession very much outside of church circles, but the idea of intercession is woven throughout the fabric of our society. If you're going to go get a new place to live, a new apartment that you're going to lease or buy, Often you use a broker, and if that broker is any good, they're your intercessor. It's their job to plead for you, to fight for you, to make a case on your behalf, to get you into that place to live. That's what intercession is all about. The Bible says that Jesus at this moment is at the right hand of God the Father pleading for you, making a case on your behalf, fighting for your interests. But at this moment, some of you, especially those who might have a church background, are thinking, wait a second. When Jesus came and lived on this earth and he died on the cross, didn't he finish the work of salvation? He died on the cross. He rose again. He said it is finished. So what is there to plead for? What is he making a case on our behalf for if the work is already done? Here's the key. It's true that in Jesus's life, death and resurrection, he finished or accomplished the work of salvation. But your experience of salvation is very much a work in progress. It's possible to believe something that you haven't actually experienced or not experienced fully. I believe that there is a place called the Maldives and I believe that a week long vacation in one of those overwater bungalows would be pretty great. But that's all it is for me. It's just an idea, it's a belief. But if you've been to the Maldives, you also believe in it, but your belief is different. Your belief is a felt one, it's an experienced one. You remember what the morning sea breeze felt like when it blew into your bungalow. You remember walking out of your front door and almost falling into clear blue water. You remember how sad you were when you had to leave. You see, we both believe in the same thing, but our experience is very different. For many Christians, the reality of Jesus living and dying and rising is just kind of a set of ideas. And what the intercession of Jesus is about is taking truth that you know and working it into your heart so it becomes felt. And that gap, the gap between what we know just as ideas and what we experience as reality is all the difference in the world. This is why for many people, you believe that on the cross, Jesus died for your sin. You're forgiven. And yet deep down, you live as though you don't deserve good things to happen to you because of all the bad things that you've done. This is why you might know as an idea that Jesus loves you, but you move through the city with an undercurrent of anxiety about what others think of you. You might believe your future is secure, Jesus defeated death, the kingdom is coming, and yet day to day you can't stop dangerously overworking because you feel like the more money you have, the safer you're going to be. You see, there's a gap between truth we know and what we live with and feel in our bodies. And the intercession of Jesus is about taking that gap and closing it. It's about taking truth that we know and making it felt. It's about experiencing the salvation that Jesus has already accomplished precisely in the moments where we most need it and in the parts of your life where we're most prone to forget it. A couple of years ago, some of you know this, some of you were part of these conversations. When my wife and I were thinking about what was next for us in our ministry, we had opportunities to stay here in New York and pursue some ministry options. We also had an opportunity to go to London and lead a new church. And we were at, like some of you are at different points in your life, a big decision moment you know at certain seasons of life that if you go to the right or if you go to the left, it's going to change your life forever. And so we were at a big decision moment. Do we stay in New York? Do we go to London? And as that discernment process was going on, we were doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do. We were praying. We were talking to wise and trusted friends and leaders trying to get counsel. We were making Excel spreadsheets and doing all that stuff. We were doing all the things that you were supposed to do, and yet as that season of discernment was going on, I was feeling increasingly anxious, restless, and I became very irritable, especially to Michelle, God bless her. And what was happening is that period of time was going on, I was living as if the presence of God in my life depended upon the decision that I made. And that if I made the wrong decision, that our life would fall apart forever. And one day, in the midst of all that anxiety and restlessness, the intercession of Jesus broke through. And as I was praying and I was saying to God, God, show me what to do and I'll obey you. It's as if clear as day, God said to me, Bijan, the issue is not me showing you what to do. The issue is you believing that I will be with you no matter what you do. And what was interesting about that is I remembered, as I heard God speak to me, that that's just a quote from the book of Joshua. That God promises to Joshua, I will be with you wherever you go. And what's interesting is I had read that passage, I don't know, three or four dozen times. It was truth I had in my head. But in that moment of restlessness and anxiety, because Jesus was interceding, truth that I knew became felt. And I still had to make a decision. We still had to figure out what to do, but I felt a little more peace. I was a little less irritable and a little less anxious. What's that? It's what Jesus is doing for me, for you, for his church, every single moment of every single day pleading on our behalf so that we would live and feel the truth that he's already accomplished. That Jesus is praying for you. But second for today's sermon, what I want to show you is how he's actually praying. John chapter 17, which is the main text that we read today, is, I don't have the words to adequately express to you the power of what's before us. Because John 17 is the prayer of Jesus Christ hours before he was betrayed and went to the cross to die. We have an intimate glimpse into a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. I mean, how can you describe that? I can't. All I can tell you is that this prayer, as Leslie Newbegin has said, reveals the very heart of Jesus. It gives us a glimpse into what matters most to Jesus. Because you know, when you get to the end of your life, you choose your words very carefully. And here's Jesus at the end, and he has a limited amount of time to pray. And the question is well, what's he praying about? What's most on his heart? And the answer, and this prayer is 26 verses long, and 20 of them, he's praying for you. <laughs> he's praying for his people. And he's revealing his deepest heart for his church. To say it differently, If Jesus were standing here right now, John 17 reveals what he would want to say to you. This is what he ever lives to plead on our behalf for. This is what he's praying for you about today. And so what I want to do, we don't have a lot of time, but very briefly, I want to show you two of the main themes that he's praying for. And you know, he's praying for the very same kinds of things that you would pray for the people that you love the most in the world. He's praying to God, his father. He's thinking of you. He's thinking of his church and he's praying, God, keep them safe and fill them with joy. Keep them safe and fill them with joy. Let me show you. If you still have the passage open in front of you, come to verse 15. Jesus says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus is not praying that you would be spared life's hardship. Hardship is not the greatest threat to your spiritual life. Jesus instead is praying that you would be protected from the evil one, or sometimes called the devil. And Jesus knows that the real danger is the evil one's attempt to destroy your life with God. And the main way the devil, the evil one, tries to destroy your life with God is by lying to you. In John chapter 8, so same book earlier, Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. That from the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of humanity's story, the way in which the devil gets humanity to rebel against God is by lying to them. And basically, if you look at how the devil lies to people, you can summarize it like this. Every lie the devil whispers to you is an assault on God's generosity or God's integrity. Which is basically to say, God doesn't really love you and you can't really trust him. And in one way or another, every single lie that the devil whispers to you, the devil whispers to me, is trying to make me doubt God's goodness or God's trustworthiness, and so he lies in all kinds of ways. Things like God's just holding out on you. He's giving you those commands to restrict your freedom because he doesn't want you to have fun, or he lies to destroy Christian community like this. If people really saw you, then they wouldn't love you, so you better keep your mask on. Do the lies of the evil one come in all kinds of directions, basically trying to keep us from believing in God's goodness and God's trustworthiness. And so Jesus here in his prayer is saying, Father, keep them safe. Help them to discern truth amidst the lies. Because every time you and I sin, it's because we're believing something about God that he doesn't actually love or that he's holding out on you. So much more I could say about that. But Jesus is praying for spiritual discernment to detect and to resist the lies of the evil one. God, keep them safe. And second, Jesus is praying this morning for you to be filled with joy. If you look with me at verse 13, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they, the church, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Today, Jesus is praying for your joy. Joy is very hard to define. It's certainly not being a bubbly personality or just, you know, glass half full kind of person, although we like you. It's good to have you here. Joy is very hard to define. Sometimes joy looks like a smile or sounds like laughter, but most often joy feels like gratitude. Joy feels like awe, that this world keeps spinning and you get to be a part of it. Joy is a soul that's fully alive. And Jesus, what's interesting, is that he's praying for your joy, having already acknowledged that your life is going to be filled with trouble. Remember verse 33 of chapter 16? In this world, you're going to have trouble. And God filled them with my joy. And I've often wrestled with this and wondered about it. How is Jesus both acknowledging the reality of suffering and sorrow and praying for deep joy? And the answer, the key that unlocks this mystery is right there in verse 13. Jesus prays that we would have the full measure of his joy. And Jesus's joy is a very particular kind of joy. You could say it's a joy that is cross-shaped. Just a few moments before Jesus began praying in chapter 17, he was teaching in chapter 16, talking to the very same people that he's praying to. And when he was giving them teaching, he said something about joy. Let me read to you a couple of verses from chapter 16. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. A woman, when she's giving birth to a child, has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And so also with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy." These verses are the key to Christian joy. When I'm going through hard stuff, I often say to God something like, God, please take this away and give me something better. And you know what God says? No. I'm not going to take away your sorrow and give you joy, but I'll do you one better. I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. And Jesus illustrates what he means. A woman, when she's giving birth, has pain, but then there's joy The very thing that causes the pain becomes the thing that produces deep joy. And Jesus is not just talking in the abstract. He's talking specifically about what he's about to accomplish. That his death, his dying on a cross would bring tremendous sorrow. But that dying would lead to resurrection which would become the source of incomparable joy. And what Jesus is saying simply is this, you don't get resurrection without crucifixion. He doesn't just take away sorrow and give joy, but he turns sorrow into joy. Now, I want to be honest with you that part of me hesitates in talking about this because I know how it can sound. Uh, There's the preacher again saying that at the end of every storm, there's a rainbow. When God closes doors, he opens windows. And you got to hear me. I don't mean any nonsense like that. What Jesus seems to be saying, and I don't always know how this works out because I know some of your stories and I've felt too, sometimes sorrow feels completely overwhelming and it is impossible to see how any good might come from it. But the only reason I can stand here today and say what I'm saying is because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he did then at some level, the heart of the universe is telling us that there's no sorrow that God can't ultimately turn for joy because he did it on the cross. And that's the kind of joy that Jesus wants you to experience. Or as the Puritan Thomas Watson used to say, the Christian is one who can laugh when there are tears in their eyes. That's the kind of joy that Jesus wants for you because that's the kind of joy the cross produces. And so what's Jesus doing at this moment? He's pleading on your behalf. God, keep them safe from the lies of the evil one. Fill them with joy that is cross-shaped, available even in the worst of seasons and suffering. So finally, the question then, as we close and prepare to continue in worship and come to the table, is how do we respond? Today, how do you respond to Jesus praying for you? Three things, and then we'll be done. First, we have an invitation to realize something. One of the challenges in teaching about prayer is it's very easy, and especially for fast-paced, consumeristic, get-stuff-done New Yorkers, it's always tempting to ask the question, like, is prayer even working? Like, I'm praying, but is it even, like, is anyone listening? Is it doing anything? And so even as I preach a sermon about Jesus praying for you, you might be thinking, oh, that's nice, I mean, great, but what, like, is it working? Is he? Does it do anything? And here's what I want you to realize today. Every single inch of spiritual growth in your life is because Jesus is praying for you. Every single moment that you have an impulse towards God is because Jesus is pleading on your behalf. When you hear a sermon, if the words of that sermon do something to encourage you or make Jesus more real to you, it's not because the preacher was eloquent. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If you come into church one Sunday and out of nowhere, the lyrics that are being sung pierce the darkness of your despair and fill you with hope, it's not because the band was amazing, though they are. It's because Jesus is praying for you. If you are able to say no to something that you really want, but you know that having it is going to numb your taste buds to the things of God, it was because Jesus prayed for you. You see, the question is not, is prayer of Jesus working? (laughs) The question is, do we have eyes to see how much it's working? To realize that every instance of spiritual growth, every moment of spiritual fruit in our life is the result of Jesus praying for his people. John Owen put it this way the Father always hears Jesus' prayer. There is not a deliverance that we have from any trouble, a recovering of health, the ease of pain, freedom from any evil that has ever laid hold upon us, but has come through the intercession of Jesus Christ. We are alive in the world today, undevoured merely on account of the intercession of Jesus. Do you realize that? Second invitation, not just realizing, but rest. Do you know the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? I won't sing it because you don't deserve that kind of punishment. But there's a stanza in that hymn that goes like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear. Some of you are nodding. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, there's a lot of truth in that hymn, isn't there? Wouldn't our lives be filled with a lot more peace if we prayed a lot more than we do? Absolutely. But without being overly critical of a beautiful hymn, can I also say what incredible pressure that hymn puts on you? Who here wants to talk about how hard prayer is for you? And the hymn says what needless pain we bear because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. I can barely carry anything to God in prayer. And so if peace and hope in my life depends on me bringing everything to God in prayer, that's not much hope. But what if we change the sentiment of the hymn and began to realize that the peace we need and the healing we're after comes because Jesus is carrying us to God in prayer? You see, if you know that, then you can rest. If you know that, then your soul is actually quieted in the very presence of God. And you can begin to live in freedom because it all doesn't actually depend on you. The peace that we need, the peace that we long for comes because Jesus carries us to God in prayer. I love that right after Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, he starts praying. I almost expect Jesus to say, Guys, it's going to be really tough, so you better get prayed up. But he says, Guys, it's going to be really tough. I'm praying for you. You can rest. FD Bruner puts it this way We Christians are being prayed for by a person very good at prayer. We are not on our own. So let's relax and come to Jesus' party. Third invitation surrender, something to rest in, something to realize and to surrender. Scary as it is, the most liberating, life-giving thing you can do is surrender your whole life to Jesus. Recently, our church in London, I invited our congregation to pray one of the shortest, scariest, and most liberating prayers that we ever could. Not our will, but yours be done. This morning, one of the ways we respond to Jesus praying for us is by surrendering to him and saying, not our will, but yours be done. And that is a really scary prayer to pray. And the thing that will give you confidence to pray such a prayer is remembering that John 17 is not the only prayer Jesus prayed that night before his death. But after what we read in John 17, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he kneels down, sweating drops of blood and agony of what's about to come. And Jesus prays to his father, take this cup from me. Humanly speaking, Jesus did not want to endure the pain of the cross. And yet Jesus says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, the maker of every star in the sky, surrendered himself to the cross so that you could surrender your life to him because he already has surrendered his life for you. So cry out to him, pray to him, the one who ever lives to pray for his people. Let's come to him in prayer now as we prepare for the rest of our worship. Our God, as we meditate and reflect on the truth that we've just heard, we pray now for an experience of your love and grace as we sing, as we give, as we come to the table. May the prayer and the love and the grace of Jesus be more real to us than it's ever been. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.